the many hundred millimeter Takahashi telescopes on episode 303 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I am Chris. Joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up the nighttime sky. And then in this episode, we answer the question, why does Takahashi have so many darn four-inch models of their refractors? So this is our last episode for a short while, Shane. Mm -hmm. Although the listeners won't know that. We'll still be releasing two a week, but you and I are putting a few in, in the bank so that we can take next weekend off. Mm -hmm. Big plans? Mm, relaxation, maybe some astronomy. Ooh, that'd be nice. Weather's mm -hmm. looking good. It is. So sure. let's hope we can get out. That would be great. That would be awesome. So perhaps one of our most frequent questions is, I want a refractor. What should I get? What is your answer, Shane? <laughs> well, it you know depends on what they would like to observe. Uh, most listeners are really good too with like, I want to be able to grab everything in one hand or this is my budget. Like they, they typically have the requirements listed out, but, um, I think the last one, uh, somebody was asking about a three inch refractor and my recommendation was, well, I really like my 76 DCU Takahashi. It's, yeah. it's not cheap, but it's the last three inch you'll ever buy. So, yeah. Yeah. And I really think that, uh, these tacks are, are a pretty good deal. So, um, they're a little bit more expensive, but I still think they're a bargain for what you get. So you get a scope that's tuned for your particular purpose, whether it's wide field imaging planets, deep sky, like whatever it is. And I personally own the uh, FS 60. It's just this little incredible wide field scope. Um, I, I bought it. I thought, how much am I going to use this scope? That scope is my most used. I just use it all the time. Like I use that in place of binoculars. It's that was the method to my madness when I bought it. And that's exactly how I use it. It's worked out exactly that way. So last night I was on um, Comet E3ZTF and Mars in the same field of view in that scope. And at 25 power in my uh, Doc Terrier 12 and a half, I can see the, uh, the disc of Mars and the comet and the tail all in the same field of view and you get a fair bit of detail at uh you know at 25 power in a little 60 millimeter telescope travel with that scope um beautiful and wide field great on planets I even have the extender for it to take it to f11 or whatever it is um but most i just use it in the regular f5.9 configuration so have you looked through many other takahashi shane uh, no, actually, like, uh, I, I looked through, uh, I think it was, um, do they make one called an Epsilon? Like it's an astrograph, I think. Yeah. Um, and I've looked yeah. through a Mulan, um, and then outside of that, it's just our little collection. So Mike's, uh, 76, I forget 78. which model 78. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I've looked through that. I've looked through, you know, your two and then my TSA one Oh two, as well as my 76 DCU. Yeah, so it's a pretty good little selection amongst us. We've had uh, whatever that is, four or five uh, different telescopes, and they're they've all been excellent. A mm -hmm. um, couple little funny things about the tank scopes: the hardware looks a little bit dated. Um, it's a little bit idiosyncratic with hospital green hardware on their focusers. Oof, I love and, it. Uh, <laughs> some hefty tube rings, eh? Yeah, yeah. Um, there, the, the clamshell that I have for this 76 DCU for sure is heavy, uh, you know, compared or relative to other options, but, um, I do, I do really like it. It's very secure. 
And uh, the clamshell really is quite nice for sliding the OTA up and down, you know, for balance purposes. So uh, I, I do like it a lot. Yeah, it's, they're very utilitarian. Um, oh, yeah. One other thing is they use like a 1980. It, it is like a 1980s Corvette white paint formula. It actually is one of the Corvette paint formulas that they use on them from like the 1980s. <laughs> really? I did not know that. Yeah, like there's some strange things with these, um, but perhaps it's part of the magic, uh, which makes the Takahashi scopes um, not that much more than other mass-produced scopes, because in a way they still are mass-produced. They have a production uh, mm-hmm. formula that we're going to get into here, and it just works. They're they're really um, widely available telescopes, even if they're back-ordered or whatever, you can order it, and typically you can have it in a few weeks, or maybe now if things are delayed, it might be a two or three months at most, versus with other similar quality scopes, you you could wait years to get some of the other telescopes that are out there that are in the same performance uh, level. Yeah. One one that does intrigue me a bit is uh, what Stellarview is doing uh, with their newer doublets. Um, they're using FPL 53 glass, which is a synthetic fluorite. But, um, you know, uh, I, prior to this episode, I was looking at, you know, what the four inch, uh, tack doublets go for, which is, uh, I think around 2,500 us dollars, uh, the four inch stellar view is about 300 less, but you know, you get a much better focuser that's dual speed. You get rings, uh, you get a, 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 a like a Vixen plate. You might even get a finder. I'm not sure. But what's very interesting about the stellar view is you get uh, a guarantee of a Strel, uh, that's greater than 0.98, I think, or 0.96. I can't remember. Maybe it's 0.96. Basically they, they, they're guaranteeing almost like a perfect finish to the lens, which that is important. Um, now TAC doesn't include any measurements like that, but you know, you, the, the quality is inherent with the Takahashi as well, but there, there are some intriguing options out there. However, I, I really do like my tax. Uh, I don't know if we'll get into it. You know, one of the things they do well too is just the they are fairly lightweight for the most part. If you're sticking with the doublets, but yeah, anyway, I'll let you get into the flow here. Yeah, um, personally, yeah, and no, I mean that that's all great. Um, I I feel the best Takahashi's to get are to try to find a really good used one mm-hmm. in the four inch size because um, they've made so many four inch refractors. Um, that usually you, you can almost always find a four inch Takahashi for sale. And then when I was talking to one of our listeners, they, uh, they were just asking me like, well, which four inch Takahashi they were looking at one, then they looked at another and then they were like, holy cow, like how many of these four inch Takahashi's are out there? And I was like, you know, it is kind of a funny thing. Um, and, and we'll get into just maybe why that is. So a little bit of history. So Takahashi Telescope started in 1932. Well, not as a telescope company, but uh, Katero Takahashi founded uh, a sand casting factory. And it's still in operation today. Shane, I put a link here. Mm-hmm. It's it's all in Japanese. However, um, you do not need to understand Japanese to see what's going on here. Have you watched this video? It is mind-blowing. It's amazing. Yeah, I've seen that. It was posted on Cloudy Nights a, yeah. a while ago. And uh, yeah, it's a great video. It, and, and it shows them shoveling sand into these forms and making the telescope parts. Um, and the other part is that, and I'll, I'll mention this later on, but I should mention it now. So Takahashi themselves don't make 
the optics. Mm-hmm. They make the uh, hardware. And then Optron, Canon Optron, Optron is division of the Canon company. They make these custom uh, lens uh, elements for Takahashi to use in their telescopes. And it's actually the same that goes for uh, Borg. We'll talk uh, more about that later. But after the First World War, or sorry, after the Second World War, not the First World War, after the Second World War, the factory began producing optical equipment with the first Takahashi telescopes being made in 1969. And that was the TS-65 refractor. Shane, are you familiar with that telescope at all? Well, it's about 14 feet away from me right now. (laughs) Um, Actually, I don't know if I have the first TS-65. There's a few versions of it, but um, uh, yes, I have a TS-65 with a 1,000 meter focal length, and it's a wonderful telescope. I I think just looking at the photos I was looking at last night, uh, I was a little tired because I went observing and then sort of finished making up these notes, but I I was thinking that that yours is definitely in that... uh, you know, early generation of Takahashi. So it's kind of interesting that you actually have one of those. Yeah. What's, what's kind of neat, just a side note is it's a triplet, um, but it's also semi-apochromatic, they call it, which I thought was kind of interesting because, you know, most triplets today would for sure be apochromats. So they're, I don't know if the definition has changed or their, uh, their standards are just that high. I'm not sure. First fluorite refractor came out in 1971. That was the TS-90. And really, uh, fluorite, well, this is the optical glass. It's like a crystal or something, I think, isn't it? They grow it, and mm-hmm. then and then they use it for making optical lenses. And I think in many ways, Takahashi was um, one of the uh, main popularizers of using this technique for making um, refracting lens elements. Yeah, and, and one of the things that sets fluorite apart, uh, and maybe the main thing, is that I believe it is like... Um, like all glass will have little bubbles in it, uh, micro bubbles. Like you, you probably can't see them visually, uh, but they're there. Uh, and I believe fluorite has none of that. Um, so that's why high-end optics will sometimes choose fluorite, uh, because it's near perfection. Not to be confused with flower, right? Baking products. Who's sponsor today. Larger telescopes soon followed, including the MT Reflector series, which I've always sort of been oddly fascinated with because I always like the idea of being able to buy an 8-inch Takahashi for less than $1,000 Canadian. And today, uh, Mr. Kuchiyaro Takahashi manages the staff of 40 working just outside of Tokyo in the sandcasting facility. So it's still running and still running with uh, somebody from uh, Takahashi uh, managing things there. So it's pretty cool. And yeah, I'm not sure if I'm saying the names properly here. I just put them in and um, I've listened to how other people say Takahashi and it sounds so much more beautiful than when I say it with my Canadian accent. <laughs> um, th- there's been a whole series of different refractors. Um, they've had the TS that we talked about, the FC, the FS, the FCT, the FCL, the TOA, the TSA, and the FSQ. So as mentioned, the TSA, they're older ones. And uh, Shane, you you talked about having the uh, TS-65, but I think they had a few different versions of of the TS scopes over the years. They did. Uh, There was a TS-80. There was a a TS-65 that was a really fast scope and it was i think it had a designation uh with the letter p for photography okay and uh that one's a little more desirable because i believe there was fewer of those made 
Yeah. Then we have the uh, FC models, version one, doublets with the fluorite at the back. And this was the first true series of full apocrymatic telescopes. Um, they made them from 1981 through 1991 in 50 millimeter through 150 millimeter sizes. And then uh, very shortly after, almost, you know, in the same production period of time, they came out with the FCT. T standing for triplet. Yep. And again, true apocrymats. And again, uh, made them in, well, not 50, but 65 through 250 millimeter uh, refractors. Imagine having a Takahashi 10 inch triplet sitting in your backyard. Mm, that would be incredible. Yes. Grab and go to the chiropractor. Yes. Perhaps the most coveted of their vintage lines was these FCTs. And uh, one of the ones that, that you know, I've hemmed and hawed when I've seen these come up is the 65 millimeter version, mm-hmm. which was supposed to be like F4.9, but I, I think it ended up being like a different focal ratio and it being like a 305 or a 308 millimeter focal length. Um, but they are very, very coveted little tiny telescopes and, Boy, I hemmed and hot. I've almost bought that a few times to actually replace my TAC FS60 because I love my TAC FS60 so much. And the idea of having just a slightly larger, slightly wider field telescope in a triplet. I, eventually, I got to buy that telescope, I think, just to have the the ultimate portable Takahashi telescope. Yep, I and think you need it. Then there's the first telescope I ever looked through by Takahashi which was the FCL released in 2000. Have you ever looked through the FCL? No. And most people are going to be like, what is an FCL? FCL is AKA a Sky 90. Oh, okay. Yep. And these had a problem. And this is kind of, I think, where the um, Takahashi name maybe got a bit, uh, let's see, tarnished. <laughs> I like the older version, um, but it had had an issue with the lens alignment. So if you want to get one, you want to get the Sky 92, and uh, that had fixed the lens alignment issue. It was recently resurrected by Borg telescopes because they're using um, a very similar, I think, optical prescription in their uh, Borg 90 FL, which is F5.6, which was about the same as the Sky 90. And would make a beautiful little portable telescope for somebody like Shane. <laughs> Maybe one day. Uh, I've, I've always been intrigued by the Borg 90. Uh, I think it, I think it would be a great telescope. Yeah, perfectly uh, lightweight and reasonably affordable. Very nice little telescope. The other ones are the FS doublets. They were kind of like the first, um, you know, in a, in a series of, uh, of doublets became very popular. They made them in 60 to 152 millimeter sizes. And strangely enough, they still make the FS60. I own one, but you can go and buy a brand new one today if you want. And typically they are in stock. I ordered mine on like a Thursday and it came in the following Wednesday. Mm, That's pretty good. It is pretty darn good to be able just to call up and say, I want a Takahashi. And then you can just have it the next week. You can find them in stock in places. It's pretty cool. Eventually, they came out with the uh, TSAs, TSA 102, and then uh, the 120. 
you're familiar with that uh, telescope, I believe, Shane? I am very familiar with the 102. It's a heavy telescope. It looks like it probably should be a five inch, but it's a four inch and it's wonderful. I love it. Then there's the FSQs, which were quads. Mm -hmm. Those are interesting scopes. I looked through the 85 millimeter FSQ. The the intent with those is largely uh, photography though, if I'm not mistaken, right? Astrophotography. Yeah. People do visually observe through them and beautiful wide field, flat field telescopes though. Okay. Then there's the FCs. We're going to get more into those here in a moment. Um, I put another link in here. It's a Japanese translation link for, you know, some of the resources that, that I was using for this. Um, but today we're going to just talk about the hundred millimeters, oddly enough, also known as four inch refractors. And, um, they've made hundred millimeters and one Oh twos. We're kind of going to lump them all in together because Shane, we've compared them. And now you might've been able to detect a small difference, but I couldn't see the difference between a hundred millimeter and 102 millimeter Takahashi, or they're very close indeed. Yeah, they were super close. There's, I don't think there's really much of a difference if at all. These days, the optics are made by Canon Optron. Well, TAC makes all the hardware in the same casting facility. Like I said, Canon also makes the optical components for Borg telescopes. They make the lenses for them with a few exceptions, like my Borg 125 SD, which has lenses made by Pentax, who no longer make telescope lenses. I got one of the last ones. A quick note on the Borgs is that they are tuned a little bit more for astro imaging, and they never garnered the same acclaim for their optical um, components as much as the TAC has, has have they? I, I like the Borgs. I'm just always surprised that they kind of don't seem to get the same following or or uh, acclaim that the Takahashi's get. Well, you know, one big difference, and, and this came up when we uh, were recording with the Kitchener-Waterloo RASC Astronomy Club. Um, Peter is an amateur telescope maker, and he honed in a little bit. It was brief, but he honed in on the importance of baffling on a telescope. And it's one of the most important uh, improvements you can make to any telescope. And one thing I'll say about the Borgs is, is they just don't have the baffling that the Takahashis have. Like, uh, you know, a tack is, if you look down my TSA barrel, it's, it's incredible how many baffles there are, which really help with contrast. Yeah. I looked in there. Sorry. I, I think I sneezed when I did that, but, uh, anyway, all right. <laughs> I did come just kidding. I did compare my Borg one, two, five SD, which has that SD glass you mentioned uh, earlier against the uh, TAC FS one, two, eight, which was uh, Rudolf Dorner's telescope. I think that telescope is now in a museum. And, uh, we had several experienced observers, including Peter <laughs> out looking through those two telescopes. And after that, Peter went and bought an astrophysics 130 millimeter EDF. So kind of just goes to show the, the influence that these type of telescopes can have. My Borg five inch compared very favorably to the TAC FS128. And really other than having about, uh, well, an F6 versus an F8, uh, we could definitely see that difference in sort of the color and the wide field. We felt that they were basically identical telescopes. In fact, only when we really, really compare them and we're very critical on different stars and that could we see that the TAC had just an edge in color correction performance. Being an F8 versus an F6, you're definitely going to be able to detect that. But people who were less experienced, people with three years or less observing experience, could absolutely not tell a difference. They they said these to me look identical. We had very similar powers. 
with like Pentax and Teleview eyepieces that we switched them back and forth. And, and anybody that, uh, that didn't have many years of observing experience could not see the difference through those telescopes. So I think, I think the tax and the Borgs are in my experience a little bit closer though. Like I said, that was a Pentax Borg, uh, which is a little bit different. So now on to the four inch lines, I'm going to run through this. This is sort of interesting. I, I really went down a rabbit hole last night. <laughs> Yeah, it looks like it. <laughs> so in March of 1981, we had the first FC, 100 millimeter, F8, fluorite in the back, crown flint in the front. There's a joke there somewhere, but I'm not going to make it. <laughs> Apparently, they put the fluorite in the back to protect it. I think the new FCs, the fluorite is in the front um, because they determined that, well, people are probably not going to leave their telescopes out in the rain. Although mm-hmm. Debate. All right. January 1986, they released this is the tack that I would love to own. January 1986, the FCT 100 F6.4. Shane, that is a triplet, but it's fast at F6.4. What a beautiful wide field refractor that would be with my 40 millimeter Pentax in it. Yeah. Um, I'll keep an eye out for one. Ooh, that would be nice. Mm-hmm. That would be nice. I've seen them go, not cheap, but I've seen them come up for sale. August 1988, just two years later, they came out with the FC100N, which was an F10 doublet. Nice, beautiful long scope for you, Shane. That would be a beautiful planetary instrument. Oh, yeah. I do like longer focal lengths. Yeah. Followed not too far later, April 1994, they came out with the FC102, which was F8. Um, I think I've looked through one of those. They're nice scopes, little heavy, but nice. They were like F1, uh, 8.1, 8.2, something like that. Nice, beautiful tax. June, 1999, they came out with the FSQ 106. And again, like you were mentioning earlier, those were more designed and still available for the, uh, Astro imagers out there, I believe. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Nice. That would give you a nice white fill. I think they're like F5 or F5.2, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Something like that. April 2004, they came out with the FS102N. That means it had a sliding hood. In March of 2006, that's when your telescope was made, the TSA-102s. They didn't make the TSA-102s for too long, though, did they, for some strange reason? Yeah, it was, it was a short production window. And I believe there's also two versions of the TSA-102. Uh, yep. One had a sliding dew shield, one did not. Um, and then they ended the 102, I forget after how long, and and just continued with the 120. And I believe the 120 is still being made today. Yeah, it's so it's funny that they've kept some, some sort of strange um, members of these families going like you can, you can't, you haven't been able to buy a, an FS one, two, eight or an FS one, five, two, or, or any of the other um, FSs for a long time, but you can buy an FS 60 still. And you're, you're 76 though. Is that, which version is that an MC? FC. FC. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's an FC. So that's like current line. Yeah. In 2013, TAC resurrected the FC line, and I believed, and for some reason I had trouble confirming this, but I believe they just switched the lens placement. They put the fluoride on the outside and the crown on the inside, and apparently, although again, wasn't able to confirm this, just kind of like what people were conjecturing is that you get slightly better light throughput by putting the fluoride in the front. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I... 
there's conversations sometimes on cloudy nights about fluoride in the front versus in the back. And uh, I usually just skip over that because you know, it's a, a conversation that A, I don't understand and B, don't really care about. Just give me a telescope that works. That's all. Yeah, exactly. But this is where things get a little bit confusing. So and I don't know why this was, Shane. Maybe it was the success of the TSA 102 and, and the demand for it and uh, maybe some of the difficulties in producing that instrument, they decided to come out with a whole line of 100-millimeter telescopes. Mm -hmm. Quite a few. They came out in 2013 with a 100-DC, a 100-DF, and then within three years, they started producing what they called a limited run, although it wasn't that limited. Um, Anybody could call up and order it. You could get a DL. Mm-hmm. So the way this breaks down, and this this is where things get confusing as heck, is that they had these two virtually identical telescopes, one called the DC and the one called the DF. Now, I own the DC, and even when I was trying to pick a tack, I decided I really wanted to get a Takahashi. It was the pandemic was starting. It was the end of the world. I always wanted a premium four-inch apocrymat since I first got into astronomy. And since the world is ending anyway, I'm just going to go for broke and get one. Um, and then they went on sale, and I got one for like an unbelievable price, brand new, shipped from Japan. And I can't believe that I paid not a whole lot of money. Basically, the same price as a Skywatcher 100 millimeter and a brand new Takahashi to me. The DC, lightweight. 2.8 kilograms, but I found out when I got it that I could actually remove part of the focuser and then put my own lightweight focuser on. And I'm down to two and a half kilograms for my Takahashi 100 millimeter, making it, I believe, Shane, the lightest four inch refractor that you can really get. Um, I think Borg had made one. 107? Yeah, the 107. But when I, I, did a real comparison because I had considered the 107. The 107 is a is a great scope, has great reviews, um, uses similar optical glass and prescription as my Borg 125 SD. However, when I actually looked at how I would set it up, I think the Borg end up weighing like a few ounces more than my Takahashi. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. It is shocking because the Takahashi just looks like a regular telescope. And the Borg is like kind of funny looking because they've done all kinds of stuff to keep it lightweight, portable, beautiful imaging telescope. Um, But uh, I decided to go with the Takahashi because I really wanted a telescope that I could take to high, high powers on the planets. I wanted a telescope that I could use for planetary observing and do some other observing with. But really, it's been a dedicated planetary observing telescope for me. And I use it for some deep sky and and some other observing as well. But I also like my super wide field telescopes for, for the other observing that I like to do. Now, it comes with a one and a quarter inch focuser. I rip mine off right away. I never liked the focuser. The focusers sometimes can have differences to them. And my 100 millimeter focuser was beautiful. It was a perfect focuser. I had a lightweight focuser on my tack. FS60, which just didn't need it. And so I ended up putting the TAC um, 100 millimeter focuser on my 60 and I put the lightweight one on the, uh, the, the, the TAC DC that I bought. There's also a DF. Shane, do you know what the difference between a DC and a DF Takahashi is? 
Quite a bit, actually. Um, you know, aperture is the same, but the DF has a, a wider tube and a, a larger focuser. Yeah. They hardly even look like they're the same telescope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They, you know, physical appearance is very different, but really they're pretty much the same telescope uh, optically. Yeah. They've just tuned the DF um, characteristics for imagers so that you can put bigger cameras on there. Comes with a 2.7 inch focuser. It has, um, you know, I think a slightly different in focus or out focus or something. I don't, I'm not an astro imager, so I don't know, but it's it, it looks very different. It's a heftier scope. I think some of the parts are black versus the uh, Takahashi greener. They are a little bit different anyway, slightly like, again, uh, has a completely different focus around it and the tube is a little bit larger in configuration. So if that wasn't confusing enough, these telescopes still being made today, still available um, for a period of time, for a number of years, for like four or five years, they added a, what they called a limited run, but they made, I think hundreds of them are the Takahashi 100 millimeter DLF9, which was supposed to be tuned for planets. What an interesting move in, in the age of everybody switching over to digital imaging and cameras and everything. Takahashi says, no, we are going to produce a telescope that's dedicated for planetary observing. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Cause it really does cater to you and I, <laughs> you know, visual uh, astronomers that really are never going to attach a, a camera to a telescope. I had so much trouble not buying that telescope. I really fretted over it when I was trying to buy my talk because mm-hmm. the, the DC I knew, and at the time I, I was still grabbing and going things and didn't have a permanent spot to set up. And I thought the DC is so light. And then when I got it, I made it even more lightweight that it is essentially, I think my my DC ended up being 0.1 pounds lighter than my 80 millimeter doublet. Um, it's just as the, the pentultimate grab and go four inch telescope that has the uh, high end planetary performance. Um, the, the DL is, I think it's like a kilogram and a half or two kilograms. It's heavier. It's a bigger, heavier scope. Of course, mine's an F 7.4 DC and DF are F 7.4, uh, hundred millimeter telescopes, the DL hundred millimeter F nine. So it's quite a bit bigger. It's going to require a bigger amount. It's not going to be as grab and go. And so I thought, you know what, um, I'm not going to go with that. And in actuality, I ended up reading a whole pile of reviews that said, and people who compared the, the DC and DFs to the DL, um, that they really couldn't see much of a difference at all. Interesting. So I was thinking, huh, nobody's been able in their comparisons, and these are more experienced observers than me, able to say, hey, this is um, a better planetary telescope or not. And I thought, well, I'm trading off portability for a telescope that nobody seems to be able to see any difference in. It just didn't seem to make any sense to me. Yeah, I've uh, I've been intrigued by the DL as well as the uh, DZ, which I think we'll get into, but... Um... Uh, you know, now that I have the TSA 102, I'm not sure really what I'm gaining. I think, and you know, and, and I, I really enjoyed that the night we spent comparing our scopes, I could see the difference. You could like shockingly enough. And I thought it was pretty easy to see that the TSA has a darker background than my scope because mm-hmm. of like, it has a bigger tube. Like it's, it's easy. You get the telescopes out there, you look through them and you realize my telescope is made to be really, really portable. Your telescope was made to bring down 
tanks that are flying or I don't know. It's like a giant cannon, right? So they have all this room in there to put all this extra flocking and baffles and all that. So of course, it's just going to have better contrast for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that just goes to show what Takahashi is doing that, you know, whatever they're doing, they're optimizing it. So I bet you in certain situations that F9 is going to run away with the planets. Maybe instead of doing 350 on the planets like mine does, you can use the same eyepiece to get 415 power. You know what I mean? Like, I bet mm-hmm. you that's what you get out of it. And uh, I'm sure it it has that kind of benefit. Then we get to, to May of 2020 or leading into May of 2020. And, and that's this is really where things were very interesting because they had the DC and they had the DF and they had the DL all available. And in, in towards the end or middle of April, um, pandemic had just started by about a month. And I think Takahashi was already ready to roll on another hundred millimeter. And I don't know if they got concerned about the demand for telescopes during the early stages of the pandemic. Maybe they thought people weren't going to be buying telescopes or what, but they had a ridiculous sale, didn't they, Shane? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was phenomenal. It, it made the decision very easy, <laughs> but I, I think it'll be a long time before we see another sale. Uh, yeah, I don't think we'll see another sale. So basically, I was I was able to get a four inch Takahashi for less than what they sell the seventy six for today, and so that is is such uh, a remarkable deal. And I recognized it at the time. I only wish I could have bought more. Because I think I could have by now just about doubled my money on that investment it would have been the best investment I ever made. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they came out. The reason, and one of the other reasons why is they were coming out with a hundred millimeter, what they call a DZ F8, which was a heavier, although apparently pure color-free um, corrected telescope. I've read some of the theory behind it. I'm not like, I don't know much about optical theory, but from what I read with the type of glass that they were using, F8 was going to be like this optimal focal ratio for that type of glass. Any any shorter, you, you get some other issues. Any longer, you would get other issues. But F8 is like some sort of sweet keyhole Goldilocks type of configuration um, for the type of glass. And it was a Stenheiler configuration, I think, if I'm saying that right. Do I get that right? I think so, yep. And the other ones were Fraunhofer. Anyway, people can read up on optical theory if they want. Great book by Roger Sirigioli. All right. For a brief time, you could choose a Takahashi 100 millimeter new off the shelf available in stores in four configurations. You could buy a 2.8 kilogram DC. You could buy a three and a half kilogram DF for, for imagers. You could buy a DL F9 for planetary, and you could buy a DZ F8 with pure color correction. <laughs> All available at the same time from Takahashi. Super, super clear and easy to navigate that field of four inch telescopes. <laughs> they soon discontinued the DL. Um, but the other three are still available right mm-hmm. now. You, you can go on, you can order one of those 300 millimeter Takahashi's to suit, whether you're a pure visual observer, uh, like me, a discerning astro imager, or somebody that just absolutely has to have the best color correction. Doesn't mind a big, heavy four inch telescope. Maybe you have an observatory if it, and it's, you just buy it to tune, uh, 
tuned for your own type of observing. So now if I was buying it, I wouldn't have bought the DC. I would have bought the DZ because uh, I have more of a permanent setup. I mean, it's just unbelievable that in a four-inch class of telescope, like a very niche market, they still make these three, four-inch telescopes. Very strange. Yeah, yeah, agreed. But you can buy that telescope in these configurations to suit your exact purposes. And I think that just goes to show like a, a commitment to the kind of quality because it would be way cheaper just to make that one. In fact, there's there's still the FSQ 106, I should say, which is like a little bit outside of our bounds here. But you can still buy the FSQ 106 too, I think. Yeah, I believe you're right. So in, in essence, you know, for a while there, if you count the FS 106, then there was, there was five <laughs> Takahashi four-inch telescopes available all at the same time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's pretty neat. Do you, do you have any other further uh, thoughts on the strange configuration of the four-inch Takahashis? No, not, not related to the Takahashis, uh, but just, you know, my mind, and you can read probably similar uh, points of view on cloudy nights and other astronomy forums, is that a, a four-inch doublet apochromat refractor is one of the most versatile telescopes i think that you can own it mm -hmm. they really excel on everything um and are you know they're portable uh they can throw up great planetary views they can do okay on deep sky stuff they're they're just a really it's a really nice aperture to have in your collection i couldn't agree more i think that they're nice telescopes and they just can fit in anywhere mm -hmm. well with that if you enjoyed this podcast, we would appreciate it if you could do us the favor of leaving us a five-star review and say something positive. I don't know. For some reason, whenever I see the monthly reports come out from the uh, Chartables, I always see there's like the same review from like August. It looks like we haven't had a new review since August. And if you can leave us that review, it helps other people find the podcast as well as it helps to motivate Shane and I to keep going because when we see the same great review up there from August, it's nice to see, but it makes us wonder, is anybody listening to our show and enjoying it we're always happy to get your observing reports and questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com thanks for listening everybody thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show if you are interested in more information would like to contact us or if you would like to support the podcast check out our website actualastronomy.com <laughs>